scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 8 and Matthew 18, verse 1 through 10. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now about the food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, you have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weaker brother, from whom Christ, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers... In this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. And then from Matthew 18, starting also at verse 1, through to verse 10. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Let us sing from Psalm 5, stanza 3, 4, and 8.
The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. I'll read that now. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. After the sermon, we will sing Psalm 16, verse 1 and 2. This morning's sermon was prepared by the Reverend C. Bauman of the church in Yarrow, B.C. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what makes for good behavior? In many cases, the answer is clear enough. You simply obey the law of God. He tells us not to steal, so we don't steal. He says, don't lie, so we don't lie. He says, don't kill, so you don't kill. That is all easy enough. Yet we also realize that there are other situations where it is not quite so clear-cut. Take, for example, a question such as TV. Should we watch TV? Should we have a TV set? Yes or no? Or participation in professional sport? Should we or should we not? To what degree? What about leaving for holidays, Sunday evening, or starting your work Sunday evening? Or how about individual cups at Lord's Supper? You know, you can debate these things at length, and we do. And what happens? One has this opinion, the other has that opinion. Heels get dug in, heads begin to boil. You keep on discussing, yet you don't find each other anymore, and we go our own separate ways. What is good behavior? The Apostle Paul says, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. That is good behavior. I summarize the sermon this morning with this theme. God's people deny the self in order to spare the other. I ask your attention for three points. The problem Paul addresses, the solution Paul proposes, the lesson Paul teaches. The the problem Paul addresses. There came the day, brothers and sisters, when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came to the heathen city of Corinth. As a result of the proclamation of the gospel in town, some of the population of Corinth came to faith. That is to say that they turned their service of idols to to serve the living God. These new Christians adopted a new lifestyle, one that revolved around the Lord God and his son, Jesus Christ. That part is easy enough. Just what, though, were the details of this new lifestyle to look like? That's not so easy to sort out. In the congregation of Corinth, these new believers developed particular questions points of disagreement among themselves. These questions, disagreements, came to the attention of the Apostle Paul via a letter these Christians wrote to Paul. Paul has dealt with one of these points of disagreement in chapter 7, verse 1, where the Corinthians said, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul gave the Corinthians the benefit of his answer to that question. There was a second problem confronting the congregation of Corinth. It is the one described in chapter 8, verse 1. And it has got to do with food sacrificed to idols. Paul spends three chapters giving his answer to this problem. Today we listen to the first part of Paul's answer, as we find it in chapter 8. What was the situation? The situation, brothers and sisters, was this. Corinth, as I mentioned, was a heathen town, and so, in typical Greek tradition, had numerous temples for the idols. In this heathen town, the people would bring their sacrifices for their idols to the temple, be it a sacrifice of meat, an animal, or something else. 
The animal would be slaughtered and some of the sacrifice burnt on an altar in the temple for the gods. Another part of the sacrifice would be given to the priests. The priests could eat it, but they could sell it in the market. And that market was right there in the temple. A third portion of that sacrifice, well, you could take that for yourself and eat it again in the temple. That meal now, this third part of the animal, which you could take for yourself and eat in the temple, that meal was a religious meal. It had religious character. And that same time, it had a very social character. Corinth did not have restaurants as we know it. If you wanted to eat your eat out with your family or for a work function, you took your food to the temple. Or you went and bought it there from the food that the others had brought and given to the priests. I trust you can see the problem. Heathens, who used to frequent the temple with its sacrifices and its restaurant, have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The question for them now is, do we still go to the temple in order to eat? Can we have a family outing there, or are we limited to eating at home? Can we join with people from work for a social dinner in the temple? Some in the congregation of Corinth said, No, you can't do that because the temple is the place of idols. Consequently, you are engaging in idolatry, and that is a sin against the Lord. We are now Christians, and we cannot go to the temple at all anymore. Others in the congregations reasoned differently. They said, Yes, you can still go to the temple and buy food there and eat it. After all, the temple is built to idols that don't exist. They are not real. It is this element that the Apostle quotes in verse 4 of our chapter. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. Those idols aren't real, and consequently the temple is ultimately neutral. Not only is the temple a neutral place, the argument continues, but so is the food you can buy there. That somebody else brought it there to sacrifice the idols, that is their business. We know there are no idols, so that food is okay also. So yes, it is quite okay. We can take the family there and we can eat. We realize it was all well thought through. Those who held this position held it from what they considered to be a position of knowledge. They knew what they were on about. We, for our part, hear the line of thinking and it is in us to weigh it up and poke holes in it. As it is, the Apostle Paul also poked holes in this line of thinking and he condemns it. But, and here's the striking point, He doesn't say that until you get to the end of chapter 10. There he says in verse 19, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is nothing, or that an idol is nothing? No, but sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So the apostle is a dominant. No, you cannot go to the temple in order to eat food that is available there. But Paul states that position three chapters away. Why is that? That congregation is because the problem that Paul is addressing was deeper than simply the surface question of can we go to the temple in order to eat food that is available there. The question is deeper because there is an emotion involved in this discussion. That becomes evident from what the Apostle writes in, for example, verse 7 of our chapter. He says there, Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. It is defiled. And verse 9, there are people who stumble over what they see happening. You see, the whole question is not just, can I eat over there? But the question Paul says is deeper and has has got to do with, 
how others interpret what they see you doing when you eat over there. It has to do with what is best for the other. That is the deeper issue that Paul realizes, that he has to address that one first. So we come to our second point, the solution Paul proposes. It is not just a yes or a no. You can eat there or you can't. But the solution Paul proposes goes down to the deeper level, to the emotional, to what do others understand, what do others learn, how are others tempted by my actions. It is in that context that the Apostle mentions the words of verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. That, as I said before, is a summary of all that Paul writes in this chapter. And so we will do well to follow the Apostle's thoughts in chapter 8. What does he actually say? What is his line of thought that makes him say in our text, therefore? For that line of thought, we start in verse 1. The topic is food, sacrificed to idols. Then Paul says, we know that we all possess knowledge. His point? We all have particular insights, and with those insights, we feel free to argue a certain position. In arguing that position, we take our stand over against somebody else with a different position. He takes his stand, we argue from here. He argues from there, and we keep at each other, and perhaps we can polish each other's arguments down a bit, refine them a bit. How does it go when you defend your position, maintain your stand? Paul says, knowledge puffs up. That is something, congregation, that we all realize. You take your stand on a certain topic, and as you debate it, you think to yourself, Yes, I am right. I am defending my position well. My thoughts are clear and correct. Why doesn't the other guy agree with me? Knowledge puffs up. You get more and more self-confident. I am right. The other person thinks the same. I am right. And so you end up with entrenchment. And with entrenchment comes distance between the two parties and tension. So Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love dictates that the discussion does not happen simply on an intellectual level, but it dictates that the discussion also happens on a heart level, and so you get a reaching out to the other person to try to overcome the distance there. Love builds up, a striving to find the other. The apostle expands on that in verse 2 and 3. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The very fact that I think I am right and I think I can prove it, means that I don't know everything, because nobody knows everything. Somewhere in the whole chemistry of what I think, I know, we have to include a measure of humility, a measure of maybe the other person has more insight than I do. So the Apostle adds in verse 3, But the man who loves God is known by God. The man who loves God is a person whom God has claimed for himself, and God loves him. We'll come back to that. But here already the Apostle is laying a foundation for his answer in our text. Then the Apostle returns in verse 4 to the food sacrificed to idols. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. That is the position that the Corinthians also held. The Christians of Corinth were convinced that there is no God but one. The idols of the temple are not real. They are just figments of people's imaginations. They may say there are many gods, many lords, yet there is but one God, and we know that one God. Paul agrees. Then he goes on to explain who that one God is. In verse 6 he says, There is but one God, and who is that? That is the Father. The Father. 
That is a term found in the Old Testament to describe the relationship between holy God and the people he claimed for himself. It describes holy God as establishing a bond of love, a bond of grace with sinful people. God says, you are my children, you are mine. It is a word that the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to use regularly. In fact, Jesus says, when you pray, call God your Father. Remember him, remind him of the bond of love with which God reached down to make you his. That God is our Father. Paul says, from whom are all things. We are children of God who claimed us for himself, and so we live for him. The Apostle's point is, if this God makes us his, we are to be children of God, seek his will, and more, reflect the same love that God used when he claimed us to be his. So, so too, he continues, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And his reference with the word Lord is to that work Christ did on the cross. He paid for sin so that as a result, he might be exalted to God's right hand as Lord of lords, through whom we came to be, through whom we exist. This is our Savior who makes us children of God. Again, you sense something of who God is and the love of the Father. He gave us his only son to pay for sin. How, is it, how was it that God saved the world? Did he save the world through knowledge? Did he save the world through debate? Did he save the world through, my position is right, you had better agree with me? None of that. The Father saved the world through his love, claiming his sinners for himself, giving his son to pay for sin. There's another building stone that the apostle uses to come to this conclusion. In verse 13, we'll come back to that. Again, the apostle continues his line of thought. Verse 7, but not everyone knows this. That is, not everyone knows that this one God sent his son to make sinners his children. Some apostles, some, the apostle explains, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. These are Christians who have come to faith two months ago, a year ago, five years ago. They have been raised and have lived for many years into adulthood, perhaps, with idolatry. They esteemed their idols. They thought their idols were right. They've now come to faith. They know their idols are wrong. But in some way, the thought lingers. There is reality there. There is something to these idols. And so they are tempted to take those idols seriously again. That is the Apostle's point. Not everyone knows this. So you know that the idols aren't real. But that doesn't mean that everyone in the congregation is above falling into sin in relation to those idols. They see you going to eat in the temple, and they are tempted to come along. Perhaps your example, and the example of others in the congregation, there is, certain, there is a certain peer pressure. I don't want to be left alone, so I will go along too, to the place where I have been so many times, over, so many years to sin, to serve the idols. I don't want to be alone, so I will come along. Or perhaps this person is confused by your arguments. Come on. Don't you know those gods aren't real? We can go. It's just neutral ground. But Paul says, think it through. When that person, that brother of yours goes home and he is lying in his bed at night and he is thinking through the events of the day, he may well feel guilty. I sinned. I shouldn't have been in the temples of the idols. I shouldn't have eaten food sacrificed to the idols. Somebody else is convinced this food is for Zeus and I have eaten it. What have I done? His conscience is wounded. Or perhaps he even goes further. 
It was fun to be back in the temple of old. It brought back all those memories of my youth. I suppose I never should have left there. The temptation is to fall back into idolatry, and your brother is destroyed. That is what the apostle mentions in verse 10 to 12. He says, you Christians need to be careful. Verse 9, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You can think it through for yourself and say, I have freedom to go to the temple. You can go there and eat what is sacrificed to idols. But Paul says, you with your convictions and the freedom that your thinking gives to you may well end up causing your brother to stumble. That, Paul says, is sin. That is sin against your brother. Verse 12. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, it is not only sin against your brother, but it is sin against Christ. And how is it sin against Christ? Why? Christ spoke the words of Matthew 18. Let us have a look at those words. What did Christ say? Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and who is one of these little ones? In context, it is a child. Verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them. It is more than a little child, for Jesus says in verse 3 to his disciples, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be as small as a child, not in size, but in dependence on God. Your estimation of self has to be little. Okay, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, whose estimation of self is little, who is dependent on God, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better, Jesus says, for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, how do you cause one of these little ones to sin? How do you cause a brother who is convinced he has nothing in himself to offer God, who is dependent on God, how do you cause such a brother to sin? Verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. What is the sin your hand or your foot commit? What is the sin your hand or your foot causes you to commit? The sin your hand or your foot causes you to commit, brothers and sisters, is that you make your brother to stumble and fall. If your foot takes you to the temple, so that there your hand brings to your mouth food, sacrificed to idols, and your actions there cause your brother to sin because he sees you and he thinks, if you can do it, I can do it. If everybody else does it, I guess I have to do it. If your actions cause him to sin, says Paul, you would be better off to cut your hand off, to cut your foot off, because the Lord does not take lightly the person who causes one of his little ones, one of those dependent ones, to sin. That is why the Apostle Paul can say, you sinned against your brother and you sinned against Christ, the one who gave the words of Matthew 18. That instruction of the Lord is so clear. Why may you not make your brother sin? Why? That is because you are meant to love your brother. It is the word of Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with your soul and mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want your brother to do something that makes you stumble? That makes you sin? That wounds your conscience? That defiles your conscience? Of course the answer is no. So the apostle says, in love for your brother, you make sure that you don't offend him. That you don't let your hand do anything. That you don't let your feet do anything. That you don't let your mouth say anything that gives offense to your brother. That makes your brother stumble. You may think that you have all your arguments down pat. So that you speak from a position of knowledge. 
And you may think that he is weak. He doesn't understand what is so obvious to you. Paul says, exactly because he is weak, you need to deny yourself. Never mind that your convictions, your arguments are right. The fact is, you wound him, you make him stumble, and that is not love. So we're back to the material of verse 2, where the apostle says, love builds up. We are back to who God is, the Father who gave his Son to pay for sin. The Lord was driven by love to give his Son for sinners. And the Apostle says we need to be driven by that same love. So, if what I eat causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again. I will cut my hand off. I will cut my foot off. I will gouge out my eye. I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. The love of the Lord has, the love the Lord has shown to us is the attitude that is going to drive my conduct. Knowledge isn't everything. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Love is sensitive to the other. So we come to our last point. The lesson Paul teaches. It is obvious, brothers and sisters, what the church in Corinth was to do when they read this letter. They had to deny themselves. That meant in practice, if there is anyone in the congregation of Corinth who is going to stumble over my going to the temple of idols, that in itself... Never mind the correctness of the arguments why I should go. That in itself is reason why I should not go. That is the argument of the Apostle. And that is the lesson the Corinthian Corinthian Christians were to learn. We understand that this was a principle true for any question that could raise its head in the congregation of Corinth. On no position was there to be entrenchment. This is the way it is. This is the way I see it. I can prove it from the Bible. If in the process my brother stumbles... In any talk, in any debate, there has to be that sensitivity for the other and that self-denial. I will stay away from a certain course of action if you are going to stumble on account of my doing it. That is an instruction not just for Corinth, congregation. It is an instruction true for us today, too. Our culture is becoming increasingly individualized. I do what I want to do. But the Apostle says, no, we are one body together. Because we are one body together, we are all to be sensitive to the other. Whether the issue issue is one of where one goes on holidays and what one does on Sundays, whether the issue is how I dress or the order of the liturgy in the church service, makes here no difference. You can bring in so many arguments for this position and that position, but the whole discussion needs to be driven by the respect for the other, appreciation for the other's weakness as you may see them to be. That he won't see the obvious may be true, But it's besides the point. The Lord wants us to show love as he loved us. That means in practice, always be the least. Empty yourself as the Lord did for us. So what, my brothers, my sisters, is good behavior? Yes, obeying the law of God, that is clear. But in the more difficult areas, what is the right thing? Having it all well argued out, we can put it all to paper, A to B to C to D, argue it out, Make no mistake, we do have to have it argued out. It has to be right. But far more important is love. The Apostle Paul comes back to the point in chapter 13. If I have the gift of prophecy, verse 2, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Getting the argument right without love is useless. That is why the Apostle says what he says in our text. If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. It is an attitude of, I care for the other, and I am sensitive to the other. What, my brothers, my sisters, do you think of that? Does that not limit you too much 
Does that not restrict us so that we cannot do certain things that we feel quite comfortable with? Perhaps it does limit us. But here, congregation, we need to recall how much we received in Christ. We have so much in him, and what we have in him is far more valuable than being allowed to go over there to do this in this life, dress like this, have that. All those earthly things are secondary to the wealth we have in Christ. Well, if you have so much in Christ because God loved you, let there be earthly things you don't have just because you love the brother. God, your father, he is your everything. Go, show to all others that same love. Amen.